0: Hello and welcome to Detroit from Across the Pond with Andrew Lewis-Smith. This is a podcast which looks at Detroit, its people and initiatives and projects which are making a difference to the city and its communities. Every week I'll be asking a new interviewee about Detroit, the projects that they are involved in and what it is that they love about Detroit and the people who live there. I'm your host Andrew Lewis-Smith. Hello and welcome to today's show and today we have two interviews with the same guest. The first one was recorded pre-COVID-19 and it's just a portion of the interview because you, as you might hear, the dog's owners the guest dogs weren't happy about not being in the same room as their beloved owner which is sort of fair enough but i was really interested in the conversation we were having at that point because uh we were talking a little bit about how the french had divided up the land 300 years ago and how it's given some shape to the layer of um aspects of Detroit at the moment, so I've included that. The second was recorded during the COVID-19 lockdown, and our discussion reflects that, taking a look at how such a tragic, difficult and yet historic event is recorded and documented for posterity. So, enjoy! Welcome to today's show with me, your host, Andrew Lewis-Smith. As in previous shows, I'm recording here in my home, my kitchen indoors, with my customary cup of Earl Grey tea, which fuels me through uh, the sessions. I woke up this morning, this is my fifth interview, and I woke up and I suddenly thought, I'm really excited. Previous interviews I've been a bit nervous about, but I just thought, do you know what, I'm really enjoying this? People give like giving freely of their time, allowing me to talk to them um, about something that they know about or are interested in or developed, And do you know how often in our world do we get to do that? I mean, it's quite a privilege. My guest today is Rebecca Salmon and Witt, is Chief Development and Communication Officer at the Detroit Historical Society. Rebecca has a very impressive C- CV. She studied at Wayne State University and Michigan State University. She was president of the Greening of Retro- Detroit. She, in her current role, seems to do a lot around uh, fundraising. And I first heard Rebecca on a, a Detroit podcast called The Debrief. And as I remember rightly, she was talking about a fundraiser which was to do with cigars and bourbon. Bourbon. Which wouldn't have been for me since I don't like bourbon or whiskey and I don't like cigars. So, oh, and... Uh, and <laughs> well, you would have uh, loved
1: it the museum.
0: Oh, yeah, the museum looks great. We'll talk We'll talk about that. The, the two museums, actually. Also, she has a significant role in communication and media. She's been involved in lots of publications. A lot of it around urban agriculture, ecological impacts around the Detroit and the Great Lakes, and also spoken international. Ashley. Uh, So, Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank
1: you. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Could you say a little bit about to our listeners, which are dotted around all over the place, really, not just in the UK, but probably Europe, Australia, and in this North America, what the, the museums are and, and what their role is?
1: Of course. So the Detroit Historical Society was actually founded in 1921. We're almost 100 years old. And we oversee an umbrella of the Detroit Historical Museum, which is, um, we, we like to think of it as Detroit's museum. It's the first place any visitor in the whole world should come when they visit Detroit because that is the place where you get all of Detroit's stories. You can understand the real context for everything else that you're going to see and experience when you visit Detroit. So that's the Detroit Historical Museum. We also oversee the Dawson Great Lakes Museum, which is Detroit's maritime museum. So for your, for our international friends or folks who haven't been to Detroit, Detroit is, is an international city. We are right across the Detroit River from Windsor in Canada. And the Detroit River hooks us directly between um, Lake Huron to the north and Lake Erie, uh, two of the Great Lakes to our south. And so our Dawson Great Lakes Museum tells those maritime stories of Detroit's kind of um, position on the Great Lakes the importance of the Great Lakes to the development of our city. And the other uh, facility that we oversee is our Collections Resource Centre, which is where 250,000 different Detroit artifacts are stored. You know, at any given time, we can only have about 5% of our collection on display. So the rest of that stuff is in the Collections Resource Centre being conserved and preserved for future generations.
0: Wow. So that's very like some of the museums in Britain, like the British Museum or the V&A Museum, where I know they have a vast array of things. That they just can't show because they haven't got any space. So, and presumably you're accumulating stuff all the time.
1: We are. You know, it's actually an interesting thing. So, um, not only do we collect the things from the past that are important and tell those important stories of how Detroit um, began and developed, we're collecting contemporaneous stuff, right? So, this contemporary collecting activity is the things that are happening now that we know those people in the future are going to wish that they had. And um, that's actually quite a fascinating and very different field, because when you're collecting artifacts from the past, you already know what history has decided was important. When you're collecting current artifacts, it's you guessing what is going to be important in the future. And um, and that's, that really is a, a guessing game. And so we're always out there trying to look for those things and those stories that we think may become very important.
0: And I guess we don't always know, do we? Like, for instance, video recorders. Every home, certainly in the Britain, had a video recorder at one point. You put in your tape, you went down to Blockbuster or wherever. And in fact, I remember. I remember a show for Columbo in the early 70s. And, he, you know, he always went to rich people's houses who'd done some murder of And he went into this massive right. mansion in Hollywood. And he went into someone's front room and there was this enormous machine. It was huge. And he said, what's this? And the guy said, this is a video recorder. It was about the size of a normal house. It was huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a nuclear reactor. But that was the but, early one. So maybe that's in a museum somewhere, that big video recorder.
1: Well, you know what? It's Funny that you should mention. A big component of our work at our Collections Resource Centre Center is digitizing our collection so that more people can see it online. So even if we can't display it or you can't get to Detroit to see something, you may be able to find something from our collection that's relevant to your research online. Well, that digitization is, um, you know, we've collected a whole big wall, literally a wall full of of old equipment because we're digitizing VHS tapes from the '80s and Betamax from the '70s and you know all of that kind of stuff. So we actually have pieces of that equipment that help us to you know digitize everything now.
0: Fantastic, and it's hard to think yeah. that at the times it was state of the art. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> but so, so, I, so Rebecca, one of the things that be really useful because um, I've asked um, different people I've interviewed to try and give a their view of almost like the geography, the topography of Detroit. So I had someone who was um, doing like a bird's eye view of Detroit, well, not a bird's eye, a bee's eye view, rather, of Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> um, I asked someone a, a cyclist's eye view of Detroit. So if you were doing a sort of, I don't know. A historical view of Detroit, its development. How, yeah. Would you be able to describe it? I mean, it, uh, how it's developed yeah, and changed you know, and shaped?
1: What's, what's so interesting about Detroit is that it really is 300 years old, a little more than 300 years old. It's 300 years old in 2001. So I guess it's nearly 320 years old now. And it, um, it really did develop. From the river forward, of course, the indigenous people, our our first people in Detroit, used the river as transportation. Mm -hmm. The French and the English came. They all used the river for transportation and war. Um, We had several forts built on the river. French developed what they called French Ribbon Farms. So these were long, thin pieces of property, each with frontage on the river to provide irrigation to their farming. And all of these kind of uses of, you know, the river and then developing the city outward from the river are still evident in the way that you see the city today. And so, um, for instance, you know, you can still see evidence of those French ribbon farms running up from the river um, north toward the northern suburbs of Detroit. These long, thin pieces of land, which are um, typically bounded by streets now, um, those streets often have the names of the French settlers who were given those Mm -hmm. ribbon farms. So we have Rivard and and you know, all of these names. And then when you see, when you're in the city proper, which is a little bit closer in than those ribbon farms were, um, you can see the um, the kind of uh, radial, French uh, design of the city that Cadillac and Woodward originally designed with these um, with these streets radiating out from a central area in the city. This was once a design that was designed for the whole city. We only have a few spaces like that left, but you can certainly see them. Mm. And you'll know them when you're driving around Detroit because you kind of run into these radials and you're like, wait, I thought I was going one way and now suddenly I have to turn left or right and go in a, in a what seemingly a circle. So you really can see that influence. You can also see the influence in our architecture. So, you know, we've got architecture kind of stacking up in lots of different um, generations at this point. And a lot of folks know that Detroit is having a renaissance right now. So we have old buildings being renovated, and we've got new buildings being built up amongst amongst the old buildings. So you're starting to see almost an archaeology of the past in our architecture in the city as well. Um, it, it really is an interesting time, historically speaking, to look at how the city is redeveloping now, um, both from the standpoint of how it originally developed from the indigenous people on forward, and then sort of how it's redeveloping based upon the current uses of the city. It's, it, it's quite an interesting, it's an interesting time.
0: I follow, I think it's the Detroit Historic, Historical Society, I think, on Instagram. And what's interesting mm-hmm. to me is that there are some amazing buildings that no longer exist. That were yes. pulled down. And I look in abject, I sometimes comment in abject horror. <laughs> it's like, <this laughs> incredible building. Oh my God, they pulled it down. It was probably a car park or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so. you know, that's, that's a, unfortunately, it's a relatively uh, common story. You know, um, Detroit had lots and lots of buildings and it had a good long period of time where. Absolutely nothing was happening with them, and so there there wasn't uh, there wasn't interest or funding in preserving them, mm-hmm. and so a lot of those buildings just got too far gone, and so um, they tore them down, and and in some cases those are the spaces where new things are being built mm-hmm. now.
0: Hi. So now we um, follow on from the first uh, audio recording, the first interview, to moving into the second interview. And here, Rebecca's talking a little bit about um, how different her job is during the lockdown, um, as opposed to sort pre-COVID-19 lockdown. However, as busy as ever, I think.
1: You know, in normal times, um, that means I'm I'm out and about talking to people all the time. I'm you know meeting them out in the world. I'm you know talking on the radio and in television and making sure that people know what we're doing and understand the value of a historical society's work in the context of um today's world. And and in times like this, you know my role takes on a slightly different tone. I'm obviously I'm not out and about. I'm doing it from home, Mm -hmm. but that communication is still really important. And obviously, when you've had to close your museums down. as we've had for the safety Mm. of our visitors and our staff, fundraising takes on a whole different both urgency and direction as well. So our fundraising now is talking about the role of a historical society in times like like these. You know, these are historical times. We're going to be talking about them for a long time. And so we're doing a lot of active collecting right now, um, Mm. documenting this time and our fundraising and our communications office are talking a lot about that right now too.
0: Given there is so much information out there, probably locally within Detroit, within the States, of Michigan, around the world, we can access anything on the internet. How do you narrow that information down in terms of, you say, collecting it, but I mean, you guys are trained to do this, and but how how what do you collect
1: yeah, well, that so. Thank goodness I'm not the historian because I don't have to make <laughs> those decisions. But um, it is, you know, that that is a difficult thing about the work of a historical society is trying to be very um, intentional about what you collect, very inclusive so that you are collecting the full range of perspectives, mm. um, both from the stories that we collect, but also from the objects that collect and turned into artifacts. It's very important to have a full view, a 300 and 60 degree view of the issue, if you will. And so we're being very inclusive and intentional about inviting people to tell their stories. In fact, we're rolling out a new COVID-19 oral history project. It's actually called Quarantine 2020. And um, that project is inviting people from throughout Detroit and the metropolitan region to tell us their stories, record them, send photos, um, send the artifacts that they think are relevant to what they're experiencing right now. And that will that will show up in a lot of different ways in the future in what we do. Probably we will not do an exhibit on this, at least not now. You know, we will wait for the weight of history to um, mm-hmm. kind of lend itself to the story before we do an exhibition on this. But we likely will do a celebration of um, life and the people that we've lost during this time. We likely will do um, make those oral histories public so that they can be used for research and storytelling by anyone who wants to in the future. So there's a lot of ways that we'll use that information, but it is really important to us to get that 360 degree view of the situation because in the future, people will rely on that that record that we're building right now, that sort of contemporary collecting, to be able to figure out what was happening now. We know from past experience, particularly our work on the Detroit 67 project, that museums are one of the last places that people really trust to receive truth sort of truth in information. Okay. We no longer necessarily trust politicians. We no longer necessarily trust the quote unquote media, the the uh, information that we're receiving um, through broadcast. But museums and historical museums in particular still are a trusted source of that information. We certainly are doing everything we can to make sure that that continues. And our collecting in this time is definitely with an eye toward that. You know, we want to make sure that what we're collecting now and the breadth of the stories, the inclusivity of of the stories, make sure that the truth of what's happening right now will always be available. To
0: you. I mean, I think that's such an important thing in terms of capturing this current history. And there's going to be so many different strands to it, everything from the medical staff to, I've been reading and hearing about the sad thing about bus drivers in Detroit, but we've had in London, I think it's something like seven bus drivers have died of COVID-19 you know, their lack of protection, et cetera. And Detroit is such an international city, that's the impression I get. And there's such a diversity of communities. And I guess that's trying to capture that as well, isn't it, in terms of- It is, yeah. And that's when I say
1: be inclusive, you know, making sure that you're reaching deep within all of the different communities, however you define that. So when it comes to the coronavirus, we're seeing different statistics on different sort of small groups of people every day. And that might be groups of people Based upon what they, you know, how they work, you know, the bus driver story, the healthcare worker story, the police officer story. Yes. It may be um, groups of people based on um, racial divisions. You know, so, you know, we're seeing stories about why is um, why is the coronavirus striking the African-American community seemingly more mm-hmm. intensely? There are stories about, um, at least here in the U.S., about Asian-American people being um, targeted with crimes and discrimination because, you know, there's this kind of perception that this came from Asia and therefore anyone who looks Asian must be must a spreader. So, you know, reaching deep within all of those communities to make sure that our collecting is very inclusive and gets those stories, that's part of the trick and the difficulty of what we do as a historical organization. Because folks, you might think that people would come flocking to add their stories to a historical archive that would be maintained forever, but that's not necessarily true. Um, there is an art to making people feel mm. comfortable with participating in that sort of collecting. And that's one of the things that we're working on really hard right now
0: yeah and i guess there's um just looking i mean we have it here as well you know people signs in gardens and and we do this here in the uk on thursday night at 8 p.m everyone you know people go out and clap and bang and things for for their national health service and and care workers and frontline workers but there's also some amazing signs that get made by kids and by families you know and, and those sorts of things trying to sort of capture those sorts of things so there's something tangible as well because you know there's a lot of passion goes into those and those families may have lost someone how do you get hold of things like that if you can
1: yeah well you know we we have yet to see frankly but i i think you bring up a good point a lot of that um the, the sort of current sentiment is represented by these kind of ephemeral um, artwork, right? So we here in the States, we have lots of chalk drawings on streets and on mm. driveways because no one's driving around. So folks are out a lot more walking around and people are writing messages on their driveways with driveway chalk. And, and so we rely a lot on photography for that. Fortunately, everybody's got a phone these days with a camera <laughs> attached. Yeah. And so we're we're actively collecting f- Photographs of that kind of stuff as well. Um, we are, uh, we will be collecting, you know, we, physical signs, drawings from children. Part of what the museum is doing right now is pushing out a lot of content online to be, you know, help people. One of the things that we think about is what are the needs of the community right now that we can fill? And so some of the needs of the community are, you know, we, we're we definitely feeling bored and we're definitely feeling disconnected. And so to the extent that we can push out historical content that helps with that, we also have scads of children being educated at home by parents who are not mm-hmm. necessarily teachers. So we're putting together our educational content and repackaging that and going to push that out so that, you know, you can have sort of a history lesson in a box. Um, a piece of that we've done these coloring pages for children and adults alike. And um, we'll be collecting those on the back end so that, you know, that's another sort of record of these times. So um, it's, you know, whatever you can think of that is being made by people or that people feel like is important or represents this time, those are important artifacts to us. And uh, we encourage folks to, you know, don't discount the value of that chalk drawing that you made on your driveway yesterday, because all of that is a part of the record of this time. And and that's what we were made for is preserving that record.
0: In terms of, you know, your own staff, um, in terms of working at Preserving that, uh, presumably. Then, obviously, you mentioned earlier everyone's working from home. I yeah, pretty so. much. Uh,
1: you know, every museum in Detroit is kind of making its own choices about mm. what it needs to do with staff in this time. Like all museums, we had a we have a few staff members who are very public facing, and there literally isn't anything that they can do from home. So we made the choice this week to furlough those uh, staff members until we can reopen the museums and bring them back, and they can have something to do. Pretty much the rest of our staff, though, is doing their work from home. And so, um, you know, the historians, you know, they they can do their research and design their programs and that kind of thing from home. The education folks, as I mentioned, are busily both designing new education lessons and repackaging the ones that we already have for use in an online setting. Our programs folks are, are likewise redesigning programs that were scheduled for this point in time so that we can push them out online and still service our members and, and our visitors In a different way. So, yeah, there's, you know, we've, I I had the wrong impression when we began to shelter in place that I was suddenly going to have all of this time to do research and planning that I could never get around with. And um, frankly, I've been just as busy as ever. So we're we're not slowing down at all. That's
0: for certain. So it's just still full on. And the, the the amazing thing, well, I don't know if "amazing" is the right word because Detroit, you know, they talk about as you know, comeback city, and certainly the downtown area mm-hmm. and maybe Absolutely. less so the periphery was was really on a, on the up, wasn't it, in terms of the ascendant? And Detroit's been through so much. And one of the things that I picked up in my conversations and reading about Detroit is there's considered to be a degree of resilience yes. and um, support. How do you think this might impact on Detroit? Do you think it will have uh, a bigger impact than other places economically, socially?
1: Well, you know, I mean, Detroit tends to be one of those places that feels everything more intensely. Okay. Um, so, you know, the phrase that people use around here is, you know, when America gets a cold, Detroit gets pneumonia, uh, right. which seems which seems particularly appropriate yeah, these days, doesn't very it? Very apt. Um, yes. But I do think resilient is a great way to describe both Detroit and its people. We are a really resilient place. Our our model is, you know, she shall rise again from the ashes, and and Detroit always does rise again. So it may slow us down for a little while. Um, the city uh, is is predicting a large budget deficit as a result of its efforts to um, take care of its people during this time. You know, we've set up mobile testing centers at the Fairgrounds, and we've created we've uh, created a hospital out of our huge center. You know, the TCF Center, which is mm-hmm. where we hold conventions and things like that. So, a thousand bed hospital newly created in that space. And all of that requires a lot of cash that would normally be going into sort of rebuilding the city. And the the focus has really shifted to um, doing things that can be felt by the population in the wider neighborhood areas. Because so far, the resurgence really has been concentrated in the downtown area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there's enough momentum in that downtown area that it will continue, albeit slower. Um, but I believe mm-hmm. that will continue because it's, it's sort of reached that critical mass now. Everything here depends upon how our businesses are doing. Mm-hmm. So this is going to, uh, this is going to affect those businesses for a long time. But I do believe that not only is Detroit resilient, it's very innovative. You know, we just have such creative people here. We've been mm-hmm. the source of innovation for the world for forever and ever. And, um, I think that that's going ri- to rise to the top again. Um, we're seeing GM, you know, reposition its uh, manufacturing plants. Well, frankly, all of the all of the yeah. big 3 autom- automotive makers are doing that. So they're repositioning their automotive plants literally in a matter of days to go from manufacturing automobiles to manufacturing things like face masks and eye shields and hospital gowns. And that sort of switchover, literally it's it's like I I just read a report about a um a guy who is a design engineer and he was helping to design the reconfiguration of this plant. And he was working like, you know, 18 hours a day for 12 or 15 days straight. And in that amount of time, they went from manufacturing automobiles to, you know, making like 10,000 masks a day or something crazy like that. And that kind of innovation, I think, will rise once again to help Detroit reposition itself in the wake of this global pandemic. I I don't think anything's really ever going to be the same. But recognizing that and adapting to whatever that new normal turns out to be, that's a strength that Detroit has always had. And um, I really think that that strength will show up once again to, you know, once again help Detroit rise from the ashes and transform itself into the next iteration of what Detroit's going to be in the future.
0: With the museum, in terms of this resilience, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in normal times, if someone came along to the museum... Does the museum capture some of that sort of resilience? And and is there any ideas as to where it comes from or why it's there?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the Historical Society is 100 years old next mm. next year. So we're working on our 100th hundredth, hundredth year right now. Mm. Um, the anniversary will be in December. And it's certainly, you know, I keep reminding people, this is a 100-year-old institution. We've lived through the Great Depression. We've mm. lived through the Great Recession. We've lived through 9-11. You know, there have been World War Two. Uh, frankly, you know, the end of World War One. You know, you know. I mean, we just lived through a lot of things as an institution, and um, we've always been able to rely upon uh, the people who make this institution—both its its supporters, its staff, the people from throughout the city who. Who recognize and value Detroit's history? So I think too, the museums and the society will emerge from this a different sort of place. Um, The structures will be the same. The stories we tell will be different. The humanity that we capture Mm -hmm. within the museums, I think, will will show up a little differently now. I think we will continue to. You know, we've been on for the last several years. We've been on this journey to become a more inclusive museum in terms of the stories that you're able to see on our on our walls and in our halls i like to say you know we want every visitor to be able to recognize their story within our museum and i think that that initiative and our commitment and real push to make that happen is going to show up even more because it's a it's a real time connection to the humanity that we represent and this experience of the global ha- pandemic has really brought that humanity to the forefront. And I think even more than ever before, we really, really want that humanity to be the thing that shows up in our museum. It's not just a place to look at dusty old things. It's a place to know and understand (laughs) the stories that make those things real.
0: Within the museum have you as a, a staff group and an institution been touched directly by COVID-19?
1: We have. Um, one of the earliest and most high-profile uh, deaths that we that Detroit has seen is, was Marlo Stoudemire, who was our project director for Detroit 67. We all worked with Marlo every day, um, many, many hours mm. every day. Um, even since the project wrapped up, he remains and remained uh, connected to the staff and the museums itself. We had just uh made a new agreement that he was going to do some consulting on the 100th anniversary and help position us there. And so his loss really, um, you know, I, I almost still can't put it into words how it affected all of us. It was devastating. He, like I said, he was one of the first um, First deaths in Detroit. He was 43, 43 years old. And one of the people who, um, when you think of him or remember him, is one of those folks who is more full of life and ideas and energy. And, you know, he was a great connector of people. He was a social media presence. He knew about your personal brand before anybody was talking about that. <laughs> and he was so generous with his energy and his spirit. And he he really wanted to reach out and help anyone that he came across um, find sort of their authentic message and make the world better with what they had to offer. And I just almost can't imagine moving forward and doing our work without that energy at our midst. Of course, we're going to do our best and, you know, we'll we'll carry his spirit with us and do our work knowing how far he brought our Mm -hmm. museum. That uh, commitment to inclusivity that I talked to about, uh, I talked about earlier, was in large part something that he brought to the forefront of our consciousness and our museum through the Detroit Historical Society's um, Detroit '67 project. And that project would not have happened without him. Not only would it not have been award-winning in the way that it was, uh, not only would it not have reached the number of people that it did without him, it wouldn't have happened without him. And His loss will be felt by us, but but by the whole city of Detroit and Mm. all of the people that he touched around the world, I I think probably forever. So that that brought this pandemic to um, home for us very early. It Mm. made it very real for our group. Really quickly, there's nobody I, I can tell you that there's nobody within our Detroit Historical Society family who's not taking this seriously yeah. because we all felt it so quickly and so intensely with Marlo's loss.
0: Yeah, and he sounds, I mean, it sounds like an amazing man, very dynamic and quite wonderful. Yeah. And 43, you said
1: 43, and
0: very so young, and 43 is so young and yeah. had so much yeah. to give. I think yeah. one of the terrible things about what's going on is that in normal times you'd be going to the funeral a memorial or the wake or whatever it would be and you can't we can't even do that you can't even do that so not at the moment anyway yeah
1: well and we've we've talked about that i mean um it is that was one of the things that was so hard about marlo's loss i mean we couldn't even go hug his wife and his children who you know Mm. among other things marlo was an Awesome dad. You know, he just loved being a father and he was so committed to to being a father in the very yeah. best way. He brought his kids to all of our meetings. They were constant presence in the museum and you know, not to be able to hug his wife and his kids has been really difficult. It's made us think about the kind of celebration of life that will be appropriate when we all are freed of this pandemic. And um and we really you know, we immediately reached out to to Marlowe's family and said, we'd love for the museum to be a site of a memorial service for him when the time is right. But we'd love for the Detroit Historical Museum to be the site of memorializing and celebrating the lives of everybody that we've lost during this time. Because whether you have lost someone to the, the virus, or whether you've just lost them for normal uh, under normal circumstances, during this time, yeah. we're not able to appropriately celebrate their lives, and so we are going to find a way to do that um, very appropriately mm. and very historically at the Detroit Historical Museum when we get through this and the time is right.
0: Yeah, that and I guess that's uh, one of the distinct features of what's going on now that across the world I and mean, including in the UK that you know people lose. Uh, relatives. And maybe one or two people can go to a funeral, maybe not at all. So finding that way to uh, remember them and have a memorial or celebration is going to be really important.
1: It is. And I think that oral history project that I mentioned is going to help play a role in that as Mm. well. So some of the oral histories, undoubtedly, that we will be collecting are those kind of memorials of the lives of people that we've lost. And we think that's perfectly appropriate.
0: What are the things that you're aware of that are um, are moving you at the moment in terms of initiatives, project, people trying to reach out and support one another?
1: Oh, my gosh, there are so many, you know, I mean, everything from mm. um, the signs in the front yards and the chalk drawings on yeah. driveways to food rescue efforts, you know, all of our food banks are operating overtime to make sure that people get fed. One of the things that folks weren't thinking about right away, you know, we closed our schools weeks ago now to, to protect the children and, mm. and the, the teachers there. But in Detroit in particular, many of our children get most of their nutrition from school and And so they receive breakfast and lunch at school and many of them go home with dinners in their backpack from school. And so the loss of that nutritional resource for many many children in Detroit is a real and significant issue and so seeing our food rescue agencies and the school district band together right away to try to you know stop that from becoming a nutritional crisis for our kids was really quite moving People you know recognized it and kind of flew into action as quickly as possible so that's been that's been really wonderful. Um, the amount of support that we're seeing for our frontline workers, um, our ha- hospital staff, has been really, really great. There's an initiative that exists mainly online and it's a group of people who banded together to collect donations, use those donations to buy food from restaurants who are now only serving takeout and mm-hmm. deliver that food to hospitals to feed hospital staff. It's kind of a win-win, right? So the hospital yeah, staff yeah. gets fed. Um, these small business restaurants are provided with you know some cash and they are able to do what they do to, to help feed them. And people are able to, um, give philanthropically and feel like there's something that they can do um, even though they're, sh- they're sheltering in place. That's, um, that's been one of the things that I think has been difficult for people is that they, le- they would like to feel like they can do something. You know, I yeah. want to help. Yeah. I want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. Um, yeah. I'm not a nurse, so I can't necessarily work in a hospital, but I want to help. And so some of these initiatives that are, that are allowing people to help from afar, I think are really important for a lot of reasons right now.
0: And presumably the people involved in some of those projects, whereas most people, you know, sheltering at home, those people are, are sort of allowed Officially, to go out and do their all their work.
1: Yeah, you know, each each business that has um, been forced to close down, the mm. museums included, are able to list um, a, a small list of essential personnel who are able allowed to be out and about and kind of doing only the essential business mm. of, of that business. And so um, those, you know, restaurant delivery people and those sorts of folks are able to go out and we all have a letter that we carried with us. Um, I'm one of the essential personnel for the museum because sometimes I have to go sign checks to, to okay. pay people yeah. and that sort of thing. So we have a letter that we carry with mm. us that says we are an essential personnel and this is what we do. And if we were to be stopped, then um, we would have that that with us.
0: Hey, In terms of Detroit history, has there been a parallel, do you think, in terms of what's going on?
1: Well, yeah, you know, um, our our uh, senior historian wrote a piece recently. We haven't released it yet because there's some, <laughs> frankly, there's some disagreement within our staff about whether it's too dark or not. But there oh, are okay. some parallels to the 1918 flu epidemic. Right, uh, okay. Yeah, and so uh, we had our historian write this piece and we're, we're thinking about how best to use it.
0: Right, so that might go online somewhere in terms yeah. of and it's been checked and all
1: oh, right agreed and it, on- once we can agree on how uh, how how to position it i guess you know, yeah. we're, we're, I, we would like to be uplifting. We'd like to provide people with, um, you know, historical things that create context without creating panic. And so that's that's kind of the consideration with that piece.
0: And I think that one of the things that you said earlier on was really important in that, and that not just applicable for Detroit, but, you know, these are horrendous times, but, you know, that although people are left, many people are left with a very personal and painful legacy, that at some point we start to come out of it. Yeah, and things move on and, and change. We hope.
1: We hope. Yeah. We hope. I think uh, change is certain. There will be personally. I feel like there are. There's going to be ups and downs with this, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll start to feel a little bit better, and we'll start to come out of it, and then we may go. We may. It may be a one step forward, two step back thing, kind of for a while. But history tells us that our our communities and our people persevere and find a way. And that is one of the uplifting and hopeful things that we can get from from history. History also tells us that it's not going to be easy, but there's some value in understanding that and understanding the role that you can play there, I think.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about one of the other guests on this series is uh, uh, someone called Satori Chacon, who for the listeners is a storyteller amongst many things and hosts a really wonderful um, storytelling event, therapeutic storytelling event called the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers at the the Charles Wright Museum of African American History. Indeed, yes. And this is a big event. You know, it's like, I think the audience is several hundred and lots of people come and tell their stories about their experiences from being falsely imprisoned. To their experience in places like Rwanda. But I will imagine that something, an initiative like that, may be a very good, important forum for, for some sort of healing. I would think so. People.
1: Yeah, that um, Satoria's project is wonderful. And for your listeners, they should certainly listen to the podcast that she is on because um, it's uh, she's a, she's an amazing storyteller. And, and the therapeutic work that that project does is really important to people. You know, mm. healing through telling your own story, understanding yourself better by mm. working on that story. So that process is really interesting. You know, you kind of spit out your big story and it's typically voluminous and then Satori really works with people to understand the real meaning for them as an individual within that story and edit it down and, and um, distill it to its real essence so that it can be told in a public forum. And then that process of seeing those storytellers tell that story before an audience with all of the bravery that that entails is really very moving. It's it's uh, cathartic, I think, for the storytellers, and it also um, really helps the audience understand. Understand and, and sort of heal with the storyteller, and I can see when there's enough distance and perspective um, that has been gained from this experience, I can see um, a lot of people really gaining something from that uh, from that process. It's something that we see in our our oral history process as well. So the the process of telling your story and recording it, yeah. knowing that it's going into a permanent researchable archive that's going to be online and public really is is very um, cathartic for people. And we found that in the Detroit 67 project first, which was our first yeah. really big oral history project. Um, we had over 500 people contribute there. And what we found is that a lot of people, I, I think they didn't even realize the stories that they had kind of baked inside them and, and held for a long time, how anxious they were just to be able to talk to somebody about that. Those oral histories get baked down to about 20 minutes, but typically the storytelling part of that, the recording part of that is a couple of hours. And so, you know, once people get talking about the stories and the things that they mm. live, they really, they really get something out of that process. And um, Satori's project just takes it one step further and, and turns it into a performance piece, which is really wonderful and amazing to experience.
0: But it is ma- amazing for listeners where you see someone, I was thinking of someone called Daryl Siggers who was falsely accused of, I think it was murder, and then falsely imprisoned, really, for about 30 years. And it was remarkable listening to his story. And he told it with such grace, actually, in terms of, um, reminding me of Nelson Mandela in terms of yeah. the way he was talking about his experience. And it is really powerful. So if people seek out the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers podcast, and I think, yeah, I suppose, one of the other things that we know that, um, for people, and I guess being in nature, and, you know, Detroit is a lot of open space and it's got trees and things. And I think that when people are eventually really allowed out, yeah, that's probably going to be really important just in itself.
1: Detroit does have um, a lot of open space, much more than um, most other major cities. Yeah. And um, that open space in many places has been turned into community gardens and or maybe just um, maybe just pocket parks, or, or it's just maintained mm. as open space. And so um, people are getting out and riding bicycles and walking and jogging and, and much more than um, they ever do normally. I think part of it is a reaction to just plain old boredom. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's one of the only things left that we can do. Um, yeah. But part of it also is, um, I think people are are discovering that when you are out in nature, when you are in a natural space, surrounded by trees, and you you can hear birds, and that in itself is healing. It's it's really powerful, and I I appreciate so much the opportunity that Detroiters are taking to discover that for themselves right now.
0: Mm, so that's the sort of natural environment, natural healing environment, and also in a more, I guess, in a more not concrete because it wouldn't be concrete but the urban farms is about mm-hmm. 1300 or so so yeah. there's always the opportunity for people to get more directly the old and we know that i mean soil contains a natural antidepressant which is like typical ssri medications that we use that's for it. depression so there's lots of i mean in a way that's a, another facet another aspect that detroit's got that's just uh, really, I think, really going to be helpful in terms of helping its population get back on track. And- Absolutely.
1: Detroit really was one of the leaders in the United States in the urban agriculture movement. Right. And so we do have lots and lots of um, urban farms and community gardens and backyard gardens. and um, And those gardeners are already producing. So um, another, another kind of hidden benefit is people are getting healthier because we're not yeah. eating out so much. And we, you know, those local gardens um, have greens and um, pretty soon they're going to have sugar snap peas. And, um, yeah. you know, so our, our uh, early spring and winter vegetables are becoming available now. So you can get sprouts and, and that kind of things from those um, neighborhood stands and the people they're providing for are their neighbors, which is wonderful. Because um, it's a local source of food, it's kind of keeping that economy really local. Um, they're supporting each other. They're getting healthier. Um, and and you know what? I suspect that a few more um, people, you know, Detroit has lots and lots of garden gardeners. Mm. It's always been a gardening city. But I suspect a few more people are going to discover how wonderful that is and take more uh, take the opportunity to become more involved in their community garden spots as well. Which is another another great benefit
0: and also i guess it highlights i mean from your historical the museum's historical point of view in terms of that food food dependency or independence, I guess, in terms of Absolutely. food security. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: food but- security is a big issue in Detroit. Mm. And and the gardening effort, that, that local gardening effort, and Keep Growing Detroit, the organization that you mentioned has really been at the forefront of that. Some really you know, great people involved with that effort mm-hmm. who um, really understand that food security issue and how to um, bring it down to its most local denominators. And help right there where people are at, and so um, you know having having that as a resource for people in this time, you know, I mentioned the food security issues with the children whose schools have closed. Um, mm-hmm. These local gardeners can help can help with that situation as well. And and the generosity of spirit in that community is so is just unmatched. And so um, those folks are really in it for the right reason, and they're able to help, and they do which is great to
0: see. Yeah, which is I just is fantastic. If anyone's ever, um, you know, if you imagine a city and then seeing, and the great thing about doing this, I wouldn't have been able to do this project a few years ago. You can go on I can Google Earth and search yeah. around and be very nosy. But it's quite incredible because the amount of greenery and trees and urban farms within this city is phenomenal. It's it is. It's really and, quite special, actually. Yeah. And maybe, as you say, more will come. Yeah. So how would, sorry, go on. What
1: are you gonna say oh I was just gonna say that it's um you know at one time gardening had become so popular that someone you know many people actually suggested like oh well urban farms are going to be the answer to all of this vacant space we have in the city well there's like 47 square miles of vacant space in the city so that was never going to wow. be po- that was never going yeah. to be possible or practical or even advisable but it became such a movement and everybody was so excited by it and you know it was so fun to see these mm. formerly derelict plots of land now becoming productive and beautiful and um spaces for community to to convene and build kind of build itself that people g- Sort of became overexcited about it for for a while, but um, and and the gardens did proliferate and and still do. You know, still there are there are new gardens every year, and it's it's really is fun to see, and it's um, it's one of the best parts of our community in Detroit.
0: Yeah. Well, as someone who's helping here where I live in, in England uh, to establish a three-acre community garden, I'm not sure if it's possible to get overexcited. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, Rebecca, I think it's just not possible. It's just so exciting. Uh, yeah. so. <laughs> Especially at
1: this time of the year. It, you know, indeed. Just coming out of snow and cold and rain for months and months. So.
0: And you would not believe how excited I get seeing a few, broad, a few bolotti beans sprout. Yeah, I you <laughs> Anyway, it's one of my highlights in my life. But uh, it's <laughs> but so one of the things is so uh, I mean it's like m- much of the rest of the world at the moment we're going through really tough times and we're recording this right in possibly the week or the two weeks where places like I mean certainly in the UK we recorded our highest rate of death yes nearly a thousand deaths um, certainly in Detroit I think you were saying earlier on it's predicted this week and next week to be sort of the peak which you know is, is horrendous at some point what like we were saying earlier when. We start to hopefully come out of this. What would you like to see? What would you like to see coming out of this for Detroit, for its people, well, the community, the, know, the city?
1: I think every crisis like this uh, causes us to come together. I hope that we're able to hold on to that coming together uh, a little longer this time, I hope that we are able to remember what it's like to, to come together to address a crisis. Um, and we use that kind of spirit and energy and new togetherness to address some of the long-term issues and problems that we've had in our community. You know, we have some issues in our community that we have been dealing with forever really. And um, it would be wonderful if one of the things we got out of this was an applic- the same sort of application of um, uh, unified problem-solving and energy um, that we're using to address the coronavirus, if that same energy and unified dedication and problem-solving were applied to some of the other intractable mm. problems that we've had for, for years and years, um, that would be a very good thing for us. The racial divide is really well-known in Detroit, you know, so um, figuring out how to address that issue that is felt and real and um, effective Mm -hmm. um, finally, or at least puts us on the road to that, (laughs) you know, makes us feel like we're making some headway addressing that, addressing, uh, you know, our homeless issue in Detroit. I, for a long time, felt like, you know, gosh, we have all these empty houses and we have all these people with no homes. That should be an easy equation to fix. I realize that it's more complicated than that. yeah. yeah. But yeah. it is not. It is not something that couldn't be solved. Um, yeah. And so, you know a. a- Again, applying that kind of newly found unified resolve and problem solving energy to some of the problems that have existed for years and years would mm. be a very good
0: thing. It would, yeah. So hopefully, a few good things will come out of this. And yet, there's going to be lots of more sadness and sorrow and pain in the next few weeks. And, yeah, uh, we have a
1: lot to live through still. Um, mm. And, you know, from the historical society's point of view, it's a. It's kind of a hard job to document that, but it's a very necessary one, and uh, we're really dedicated to making sure that the truth of what happened during this time lives on in our archives and in our collection.
0: So, my just my final question, because maybe it's maybe it's good to go out on a uh, an upbeat note. I hope that that's seen as respectful to people who are listening, especially if you're in Detroit. What do you really love about Detroit? Oh
1: my goodness, so many things. I I think you know the people you know the people that we meet every day the people we interview and who who visit our museums the people who are on the front lines of solving those problems who care mm-hmm. about each other so deeply and who care about the city so deeply there's a deep sense of pride of in the city in detroiters and you know our friend marlo that we lost was probably yeah. one of the best examples of that that guy was nothing if he was not a dyed-in-the-wool Detroiter who was so proud about his city and traveled the world talking about it. Mm. that kind of spirit lives on in Detroiters all over the place. And um, I think that's really wonderful. There are a lot of great things about our city. It's a beautiful city. It's, mm. it's an international city on the border with Canada. It, it has, you know, it has kind of all of the, the interesting things that you find in major uh, cities. And it's a unique place. But its people are what gives Detroit its real drive.
0: Yeah. And I have to say, just finally for the listeners, my experience... Which has been sort of a bit weird, really, with the co- with COVID nineteen. Was that the people who I've contacted, like yourself, Rebecca, have been absolutely wonderful and gracious and just so generous with their time and their enthusiasm about about this project. And then they're doing it all over again because the interview is really needed to reshaping. So. I've I've had a little snapshot into that kindness and generosity, which is just wonderful. Well, so thank you very much, Rebecca. That was great. I really appreciate it. You've been very Uh, kind and generous. And I wish you and the people of Detroit and your family well.
1: Thank you so much. It's it's always wonderful to tell Detroit stories, and um, I wish you luck with the podcast. And um, you know, on the other side of this, we will uh, get back together and tell some more good stories.
0: Hi, and thank you so much for listening to today today's show. It really does mean a lot because I know you guys are all busy. Uh, life is busy, uh, especially at the moment and uncertain. It might be worth thinking about it. today. We were talking about how. The museum in Detroit The Detroit Historical Museum Documents and records uh, The individual's history Of uh, experience of pandemic Of the of COVID and the lockdown And also of people's losses But also the, as a city as a whole It might be really worthwhile thinking Because this time will pass by And it's uh, could be a, a unique time But it may be worth really thinking A little bit about how you uh, Individually as a family Where you live Make a record of this Whether it's photographic whether you've done a diary whether it's uh, in some other way that you recorded things um, or whether it's just in those stories that you have within families just a thought so i also want to say thank you so much to um, some of the listeners who've given feedback from a different variety of places so uh, firstly sassy from scotland thank you Sarah from where I live, and thank you. Graham in Edinburgh in Scotland, again, two Scottish people. And also Mike in New Baltimore in Michigan, just up the road from Detroit. So thank you for all your support and for your helpful feedback. Like anything in life, recording a podcast is a learning experience. I'm a complete newbie and I'm doing pretty much a lot of this stuff. Uh, the recording interviewing organizing editing etc or myself and uh, it is a steep learning curve and i have to say i don't get it right a lot of the time and there's loads of things i'm listening to and think oh no but sometimes you just can't change it and that's how it is and uh, thank you for putting up with that so look i just want to say we um, wish you uh, have a really good week if you liked um, this this podcast what would be so nice is uh, tell a friend tell other people but thank you so much and i hope you're able to keep listening and you know what we're almost at the halfway point of series one quite mind-boggling and thank you so look, have a really really good week and take care thank you so much bye